give a warm welcome to Professor Glenn Lowry. Wow. Thanks very much, Chris. Thanks very much. I'm grateful to Krista Muth and other conference organizers for the invitation to address this August gathering tonight. It seems that it was only a few years ago that I was calling myself a man of the left. Well, as Jewish intellectuals who became neoconservatives in the 60s and 70s used to say, I'm a liberal who's been mugged by reality. What has happened to the public discourse about race in this country over the course of the past decade has radicalized me. It's time I've decided to challenge the zeitgeist. I've been doing so at my podcast and in my writings in recent years, and I'm proud to share some of those views with you here tonight. I am, as you can see, a black American intellectual in an age of persisting racial inequality in my country. I'm an Ivy League college professor and a descendant of slaves. I came up in the 50s and 60s on Chicago's South Side. I'm a beneficiary of the civil rights revolution, which has made possible for me a life that my forebears could only have dreamed of. I'm an economist who believes in the virtue of markets, property, entrepreneurship, sound money, and free enterprise. I'm a patriot who loves his country. I'm a man of the West. I'm an inheritor of its great traditions. I have said this many times and I'll say it here, Tolstoy is mine, Dickens is mine. Newton, Maxwell, and Einstein are mine. So, what are my responsibilities here? I feel compelled to represent the interests of my people. But that reference is not unambiguous. As an intellectual, I seek to know the truth and to speak such truths as I may be given to know. That is my purpose now at a moment of racial reckoning in my country. I declare right here, right now, for all the world to hear that no matter the political turmoil that may envelop us, my fundamental responsibility as a black American intellectual is to stay in touch with reality and to insist that others do so as well. That's what I'm about at this national conservatism conference tonight. I'm about speaking some unspeakable truths concerning race in America, so brace yourselves. At this National Conservatism Convocation, I'll be making the case for unabashed black patriotism, for the forthright embrace of American nationalism by black people. The currently fashionable standoffishness characteristic of much elite thinking concerning blacks' relationship to the American project as exemplified, for instance, by the New York Times 1619 project serves the interests of neither the country nor of black Americans. 
frankly, the America ain't so great and never was posture. Popular on campuses and in liberal newsrooms is a sophomoric indulgence for black people in the 21st century. Our birthright citizenship in this great republic is an inheritance of immense value. Our Americanness is much more important than our blackness. We Americans of all stripes have a great deal in common, and those commonalities can be used to show how bridges undergirded by patriotism can be built between black America and the nation as a whole. At bottom, we all want the same things. We all want a legitimate shot at achieving the American dream. We all want each generation to do better than the one that came before. We all want to feel secure in our homes and when we're out in public. We all want to live in clean and orderly communities with good services. We want the government to work for us and not the other way around. We want to be treated fairly by the broader society and by our institutions. We want personal freedom so we can do as we please with reasonable restrictions, including the right to fail. The list of our commonalities is endless. Connections between various groups in America could be stronger if we were to focus more on the things that we have in common instead of the things that divide us. Those making their living from focusing on our differences fundamentally think there's something wrong with America. Well, they're wrong. We should push back hard against their divisive rhetoric. It's easy to overstate the racial problems facing our country and to understate what it is that we have achieved. Now, racial inequality is real, but contemporary American politics obsesses to an unhealthy extent about racial identity. Just how important is race? Is it an undeniable difference between people like gender? Or is it a social construct? Consider, for instance, the growing number of interracial marriages and the ever-increasing number of people who view themselves as multiracial. And what about culture and values? Aren't they important and don't they transcend race? How do we explain the alienation that seems to afflict so many black Americans? These folks are being told by demagogues and pundits that we've gone back to the 1960s. They are being led badly astray. Black votes are being sought via the gross exaggeration of legitimate concerns. We've reached a place where black multimillionaires, LeBron James, for instance, seem really to think that they're being hunted down like rabid dogs by racist, rogue cops. Demonstrable facts seem insufficient to stop such false narratives. That is why it is so important that people like me speak out in defense of the truth. Now, as a relatively conservative black American, I have a concern about the conservative movement, which it seems appropriate to express here and now. It is troubling that conservatives as a whole make generic colorblind claims about America of the sort that allow them to remain altogether silent on the issue of race. They say everyone is or should be treated equally under the law and leave it at that. Of course, I agree with equality under the law. 
But what should all of us who nominally call ourselves conservatives be saying about race in America? Is it enough for us to agree that the constitutional framework is adequate in order to solve the problems that remain? Many conservatives would say yes. But for many, a defense of the constitutional framework allows them to go back to business as usual on the question of race. This is just not good enough. Substantively or rhetorically. It's not enough substantively because it allows conservatives to ignore very real problems in black America, which is to say real problems in America. And indeed, very real problems of the least among us of every racial group. This has been the great Robert Woodson's sober lesson for conservatives over the last 40 years. Defending the constitutional framework is necessary but not sufficient. It's not enough rhetorically because it plays into the hands of those on the left who A, never met a problem that more government can't fix, and B, point to the silence about race among conservatives as proof of their racism. Here is what I take to be a conservative prescription for the problems of persistent racial inequality in the 21st century. It goes as follows. First, work to fortify the mediating institutions, families, churches, and civil organizations and associations through which citizens, especially the most vulnerable, can develop the competencies to enjoy the fruits of liberty that our constitutional framework can deliver. Secondly, the state can supplement, but it cannot substitute for these mediating institutions. There are times when the state needs to step in, but solutions to problems in all of our communities can and should come from those communities. Thirdly, each and every one of us who believes in the modest national, believes in modest national government and mediating institutions should look for grassroots leaders in our own community and quietly, without fanfare or virtue signaling, ask how we can help them do the important work that they do, educating their children, helping wayward young men find their way, fostering the acquisition of the vocational skills that support gainful employment, instructing young mothers on how to care for their parental responsibilities, comforting those who grieve the loss of their loved ones to gun violence, bringing that hope in the unseen to those sincerely seeking spiritual enrichment. If you detect a Tocquevillian sensibility in these conservative prescriptions, that's no accident. It's a feature, not a bug. The new nationalism that some of us are pushing wants more patriotism, and so do I. It's a good thing. But it can sometimes be insufficiently attentive, this new nationalism, I say here, to how to get a healthy rather than an unhealthy version of patriotism. Chauvinism and jingoism are unhealthy, especially if tainted by racial identity mongering. This, my friends, is to be avoided. I hope to contribute to that goal in these remarks. Here's an unspeakable truth. Socially mediated behavioral issues lie at the root of today's racial inequality problem. They are real and they must be faced squarely to grasp why racial disparities persist. This is a painful necessity. Downplaying such racial behavioral disparities is actually a bluff. 
anti-racism activists on the left of American politics who claim that white supremacy, implicit bias, and old-fashioned anti-black racism are sufficient to account for black disadvantage, those making such arguments are in effect daring you to disagree with them. They're threatening to cancel you if you don't accept their account. You must be a racist, one who thinks something is intrinsically wrong with black people. If you don't attribute pathological behavior among us to systemic injustice, you must think blacks are inferior, for how else could one explain the disparities? In calling their bluff, one risks being convicted of the offense of blaming the victim. But I tell you, this is a dare. It's a debater's trick. At the end of the day, what are those folks saying when they declare that mass incarceration, so-called, is racism? That the high number of blacks in jails is self-evidently a sign of racial antipathy? To respond, no, it's primarily a sign of antisocial behavior by some criminals who happen to be black, one risk being dismissed as a moral reprobate. This is so even if the speaker is black, just ask Justice Thomas. Nobody wants to be canceled, but we should all want to stay in touch with reality. Common sense and much evidence suggest that those in prison are mainly those who have hurt someone, who have stolen something, or have otherwise violated basic behavioral norms that make civil society possible. Seeing prison as a racist conspiracy to confine black people is something that no serious person could really believe. Those taking lives on the streets of St. Louis, Baltimore, Philadelphia, and Chicago are to a man behaving despicably. Moreover, those bearing the cost of such pathology are almost exclusively other blacks. An ideology that ascribes this violent behavior to racism is simply not credible. Why have so many been getting away with espousing it for so long? Or consider the educational achievement gap. Anti-racism advocates want to banish the messenger by getting rid of standardized admissions tests, arguing that they're racially biased. They, in effect, are daring you to notice that some groups send their children to elite colleges and universities in outsized numbers compared to other groups due to the fact that their academic preparation is magnitudes higher, better, and finer. They're daring you to declare such excellence to be an admirable achievement. Yet such intellectual mastery is achieved through effort. No one is born already possessing it. So why are some youngsters acquiring these skills and others not? That's a deep and interesting question, one which I'm prepared to entertain at length. But the simple retort racism is laughable, as if such disparities have nothing to do with behavior, with cultural patterns, with what peer groups value, with how people spend their time, or with what they identify as being critical to their own self-respect. Anyone who actually believes that nonsense is a fool. Nor could any sensible person actually believe that 70% of African-American babies being born to a woman without a husband is A, a good thing, or B, due to anti-black racism. People will say it, they don't believe it, they're bluffing. 
They're daring you to observe this truth, that the 21st century failures of African-Americans to take full advantage of the opportunities created by the 20th century's revolution of civil rights are palpable and damning. These failures are being denied at every turn, and these denials are sustained by a threat to cancel dissenters for being racist, or, as in my case, for being race traitors. But this position is not tenable. The end of Jim Crow segregation and the advent of the era of equal rights was transformative for black Americans. And now, a half century down the line, we still have significant disparities. I agree that this is a shameful blight on American society, but the plain fact of the matter is that some considerable responsibility for this sorry state of affairs lies with black people ourselves. Dare we acknowledge this? I don't take any pleasure here in saying this. I am merely trying to stay in touch with reality. Here's another unspeakable truth. We need to put police killings of black Americans into perspective. There are, say, roughly 1,200 fatal shootings of people by the police in the United States in a given year, according to a carefully documented database kept by the Washington Post, which uh, attempts to enumerate every instance of a fatal police shooting. Roughly 300 of these killed are African Americans. That's one-fourth, while blacks are 13% of the population, so that's an overrepresentation though still far less than a majority of the people who are killed. In fact, twice as many whites as blacks are killed by police in this country every year. You wouldn't know that from the activist rhetoric. Now, 1,200 may be too many. I'm prepared to entertain that idea. I'd be happy to discuss the training, recruitment, and so forth of police, the rules governing their engagement with citizens, and the accountability that they should face in the event that they overstep. These are all legitimate questions. And there is a racial disparity, although, as I have noted, there is also a huge disparity in blacks' rate of participation in violent criminal activity. I'm making no claim here, one way or the other, about the existence of discrimination against blacks by the police. This is a debate on which evidence could be brought to bear. There well may be some racial discrimination in the police use of force, especially non-lethal force. But in terms of killings, we're talking roughly 300 black victims per year. Very few of these are unarmed innocents. Most are engaged in violent conflict with police officers. Some are instances like George Floyd, unquestionably problematic and deserving of scrutiny. Still, we need to bear in mind that this is a country of more than 300 million people with scores of concentrated urban areas where police regularly interact with citizens. There are tens of thousands of arrests occurring daily in the United States. So these events, which are extremely regrettable and sometimes do reflect poorly on the police, are nevertheless rare. To put it in perspective, there were nearly 20,000 homicides in the United States in the last year, almost half of which involved black perpetrators. The vast majority of those had other blacks as victims. For every black killed by a police officer, more than 25 other black people meet their end because of homicides committed by other blacks. This, of course, is not to ignore the significance of holding police accountable for how they exercise their power vis-a-vis -vis citizens. It is merely to notice how very easy it is 
To overstate the significance and the extent of this phenomenon, precisely as Black Lives Matter activists have done. The claim that something called white supremacy or systemic racism has put a metaphorical knee on the neck of black America is a lie being told daily by prominent spokesmen, a lie that the media are repeating uncritically. Let me speak plainly. The idea is that as a black person, I dare not step from my door for fear that the police would round me up, gun me down, or bludgeon me to death because of my race. It's ridiculous. An unarmed black person is as likely to be killed by law enforcement as he is to be struck by lightning. The lifetime odds of a black man being killed by law enforcement are something like one in a thousand. This tendentious posture, where violent conflicts between police and African Americans, which are inevitable in our society, are viewed as latter-day lynchings, is preposterous. Fear of being canceled is the only thing that keeps many white people from saying so out loud, but it does not keep them from thinking it. White silence may not be violence, as the social, social justice warriors would have it, but it is also not tacit agreement, and it should worry us. People are not blind. They are not fools. Everyone can see what is happening on the mean streets of urban America. Rhetorical bullying and hysterical tantrum throwing, which have been on full display since the killing of George Floyd, won't change a single fact on the ground. But here's a more fundamental point. There's a terrible threat to social cohesion in this country, implicit in seeing police killings, primarily through a racial lens. These events are regrettable regardless of the race of the people involved. Invoking race, emphasizing that an officer was white, emphasizing the officer's whiteness or the victim's blackness, tacitly presumes that the reason an officer acted as he did was because the dead or injured young man was black. This assumption is seldom tested against the facts. We do not necessarily know this to be the case. Moreover, once we get into the habit of racializing such events, we may not be able to contain that racialization merely to instances of white police officers killing black citizens. We may find ourselves soon enough in a world where instances of black criminals killing unarmed white victims come to be seen through a racial lens as well. This is a world no thoughtful person should welcome, since there are a great many such instances. Framing them as racial events is counterproductive in ways too obvious to detail. When criminals harm people, they should be dealt with accordingly. They do not represent others of their race when they act badly. Likewise, when police officers act badly, they are not representing their race in doing so. White victims of crimes committed by blacks must not come to see themselves mainly in racial terms. If someone steals their automobile or beats them up and takes their wallet or breaks into their home and abuses them, these people are playing with fire by gratuitously bringing a racial sensibility to police-citizen interactions. They are playing their race cards from the bottom of the deck. They may soon enough find that theirs is not the last word in that story. 
Which brings me to yet another unspeakable truth. An ideology dominated by terms like white guilt, white apologia, white privilege, cannot exist except also to give birth to a white pride backlash, even if the latter is seldom expressed in polite company overtly, it being politically incorrect to do so. Confronted by someone who constantly bludgeons me about the evils of colonialism in the 21st century, who urges me to tear down the statues of dead white men, who insists that I apologize for my white forebears, what they did to various peoples of color in centuries past, who demand that I settle my historical indebtedness to them via racial reparations, I might well begin to ask myself, were I one of these white oppressors, on exactly what foundation does human civilization in the 21st century stand? I might begin to enumerate the great works of philosophy, mathematics, and science that ushered in the Age of Enlightenment, that allowed modern medicine to come into being, that gave rise to the core of what human beings know about the origins of the species and the origins of the universe. I might begin to tick off the great artistic achievements of European culture, the books, the paintings, the symphonies, and then, were I in a particularly agitated mood, I might even ask these people of color who think that they can simply bully me into a state of guilt-ridden guilt self-loathing, where is your civilization? Now, now, everything I just said is white supremacist rhetoric. I wish to stipulate that I would never actually say something like that. Neither am I attempting to justify the position. I'm simply, see, no, simply noticing that if I were a white person, this reasoning might tempt me. And I suspect it's tempting a great many white people. We can wag our fingers at them all we want, but they are a part of the racism mongers package. For how can we make whiteness into a site of unrelenting moral indictment without also occasion, occasioning it to become the basis of pride, of identity, and ultimately of self-affirmation. This is not a world that we want to live in. There's an idea here that's correct. The right idea is the ethic of transracial humanism, which one associates with Gandhi or Martin King Jr. We as citizens of this great republic must strive to transcend racial particularism and stress the universality of our human condition and the commonality of our interest as Americans. The only way to effectively address a legacy of historical racism, which is a legacy that we are beset by, without running into a reactionary racial chauvinism, is to march on if only fitfully and by degrees, toward the goal of creating a world where no person's, person's worth is seen to be contingent upon racial inheritance, a world where racial identity fades in significance, a world where we learn how to unlearn race, as the writer Thomas Chatterton Williams has put it. Promoting anti-whiteness, and you can believe me, Black Lives Matter can often be found doing precisely that, will cause those advocates to reap what they sow in a backlash of pro-whiteness. The folks who think they consist on spelling black with a capital B 
while keeping the word white in lowercase are in for a rude awakening. The narrative we Americans settled upon, we black Americans, about this country is critical. Is it a good country? One affording boundless opportunity to all who are fortunate enough to enjoy the privileges and bear the responsibilities of citizenship? Or is this a venal, immoral, and rapacious bandit society of plundering racists founded in genocide and slavery and propelled by capitalist greed and unrepentant anti-black antipathy? The weight of the evidence overwhelmingly favors the former. The founding of the United States was a world historic event by means of which enlightenment ideals about the rights of individual persons and the limits of state power were instantiated for the first time in real institutions. The United States of America, my country, fought fascism in the Pacific and Europe in the mid 20th century and thereby helped to save the world. Our democracy, flawed as it most surely is, has nevertheless become a beacon to billions of people throughout this world. We stood down under the threat of nuclear annihilation, the horror which was the union of Soviet socialist republics. Here in America, we have witnessed since the end of the Civil War the greatest transformation in the status of an ensurfed people, which is what the emancipation of slaves affected in the creation of what came to be called the American Negro. That is to be found anywhere in world history. 40 million strong, we have become, we blacks, by far the richest and most powerful large population of African descent on this planet. The issue here then is a question of narrative. Are we blacks gonna look through the dark lens of the United States as a racist, genocidal, white supremacist, illegitimate force from which we set ourselves apart, not our country, but their country? Or are we to see our nation for what it has become over the course of the last three centuries, which is the greatest force for human liberty in the history of the world. This conflict of narratives is worth fighting about, which is why I'm standing before you here speaking as I am tonight. The narrative that we blacks choose will influence our assessment of certain key periods in American history, of course. There is the Civil War, 600,000 dead in a country of 30 million. The incredible trauma of that event was felt for decades. The fact is that the consequence of that war, whatever it might have been in Lincoln's mind, together with the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, enacted just afterwards, made the enslaved Africans and their descendants into citizens. In the fullness of time, we became equal citizens. Should that have taken 100 years? No. Should my ancestors have been enslaved in the first place? No, they ought not to have been. But we must not forget that slavery had been a commonplace human experience since antiquity. Emancipation is the new idea. The freeing of slaves en masse as a result of a movement for abolition. That was the new idea. It was a Western idea. It was the fruit of enlightenment. 
It was an idea brought to fruition over a century and a half ago in these our own United States of America with the liberation of four million of my ancestors. Such an achievement surely would not have been possible without the philosophical insights and moral commitments cultivated in the 17th and 18th centuries in the West. Ideas about the essential dignity of human persons, about what can legitimate a government's exercise of power over its people. Something new was created in America at the end of the 18th century. Slavery was a holocaust out of which emerged something that has advanced the morality and the dignity of humankind, namely emancipation. The abolition of slavery and the incorporation of African descended people into the body politic of the United States of America were monumental, unprecedented achievements for human freedom. Look at what has happened in the last 75 years. A huge black middle class has developed. There are black billionaires. The influence of black people on American culture is stunning and has global resonance. Black Americans are the richest and most powerful black people, as I have said, on the planet. To put it in perspective, there are 200 million Nigerians and the gross national product of Nigeria is just about a trillion dollars a year. America's GDP is $20 trillion a year and more. And we 40 million African-Americans have claimed to roughly 10% of it. That is, we have access to 10 times the income of the typical Nigerian. What is more, the very fact that the cultural barons and elites of America, the ones who run the New York Times and the Washington Post, who give out Pulitzer Prizes and National Book Awards, and who make grants at the MacArthur Foundation, who run the human resource departments of corporate America, the very fact that these people have bought in to the woke racial sensibility hook, line, and sinker gives the lie to such pessimism that the American dream doesn't apply to blacks. It most certainly and emphatically does apply. And it is coming to fruition daily. To dismiss this reality is to tell our children a lie about their country. It is a crippling lie, which when taken as gospel, robs black people of agency and a sense of control over our fate. It is a patronizing lie that betrays a profound lack of faith in the capacities of black Americans to rise to the challenges, to face up to the responsibilities, and to bear the burdens of freedom. I have urged conservatives to foster those mediating institutions of community life for non-governmental solutions to the problems of poverty in America. However, in closing, I wish also to stress that it is futile and dangerous for us black Americans to rely on others to shoulder our communal responsibilities. Here then is my final unspeakable truth, which I utter now in defiance of cancel culture. If we black Americans want to walk in the 21st century with dignity, if we want to be truly equal, then we must realize that white people cannot give us equality. We actually have to seize equal status. I take no pleasure, again, in saying so, but I feel obliged to report that equal dignity, equality of standing, equality of honor, equality of being secure in one's position in society, equality of being able to command the respect of others, this is not something that can simply be handed out in response to a petulant demand. 
Rather, it's something that we have to wrest with our bare hands from a cruel and indifferent world via hard work inspired by the example of our enslaved and newly freed ancestors. We have to make ourselves equal. No one can do that for us. Let me call in closing our attention to that escaped slave and great abolitionist Frederick Douglass, who in 1852, in a famous speech entitled, Who's Fourth of July? Asked America whether he had a stake in the nation's civic inheritance. Douglass was cautiously hopeful about the prospect that the country might be faithful to its founding principles and grant liberty and equality to his people. But he had to plead with his audience to consider the gravity of the circumstance. He had to indict his country for not standing up to its own ideals. That was in the 1850s. The question posed by Frederick Douglass in 1852, an open question at the time, has been answered by history. As a black American intellectual who loves his country, I can say without equivocation in the year 2021 that the 4th of July, like Shakespeare, like Balzac, like Einstein, is ours. It belongs to me every bit as much as it does to you. The question confronting we black Americans today, then, is not whether we are included within the body politic of the United States of America. What a ridiculous question. We most emphatically and obviously are. Today's question is not how to end our oppression. Rather, it is, what shall we do with our freedom? What will we make of the enormous inheritance that is our birthright citizenship in history's greatest republic? Thank you. Thank you.